Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey are the New York Times reporters who broke the Harvey Weinstein story. For five months, perpetually in danger of losing the scoop, they cultivated and cajoled sources ranging from the Weinstein's accountant to Ashley Judd. The article that emerged on October 5th, 2017 was a level-headed and impeccably sourced expose whose effects continue to be felt around the world. Cantor and Tui documented 25 years of sexual abuse, harassment, and exploitation by one of the most important producers in the history of Hollywood. The story put a definitive end to his career and his company. It has also shaken the lives of some of those who supported and defended him, like lawyer Lisa Bloom, who until last year had followed the path of her feminist mother, Gloria Allred, in representing victims. And just as clearly, the reporters documented the loose network of business and creative interests that enabled rape, harassment, and casting couch coercion. They revealed to America the culture in Hollywood that knew about all of this and disapproved, but expected individual women, victimized and isolated, to bear the burden of exposing the powerful men who humiliated them themselves. But before any of the fallout, Jody Cantor and Megan Tui had to source up. One of the first daunting tasks was to try to get in touch with these famous actresses, but Megan and I were like, we don't know any actresses, you know, and getting, we're sitting there saying, okay, how do you get, you know, Ashley Judd's phone number? I was going to ask you, what was the path to Ashley Judd? Could you can't, you can't. Can you talk about that? Well, that one was pretty easy because Nick Kristoff knew her, Nick mm-hmm. Kristoff, the opinion columnist at the Times. But we felt strongly that we could not go through publicists or agents because they're gatekeepers. They're just yeah. going to shut everything down. We Tell want, me about it. We wanted to reach the actresses directly. and And so the questions were, you know, how do you reach these people? 
And even if you get them on the phone, what are you going to say in the first 45 seconds of that phone conversation to earn some trust and keep the conversation going? So actually, that's sort of the origin of my partnership with Megan, because Megan was on maternity leave. and But she had been a sex crimes reporter for a long time, and she had done the reporting Where? On, on Donald Trump and women. At the Times? I worked at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. I worked at the How Chicago the Tribune. Times? And I've been at the Times a year and a half. Um, I came into the Times in 2016 to join the team that was doing coverage of the 2016 presidential race. So I had done these stories about Trump and his treatment of women. And after he was elected, had been part of the coverage of his when we were first looking at the ties between him and Russia. Um, So I had been doing that work up until the March of 2017 when I had a baby and went on maternity leave. And so it was while I was on maternity leave that Jody started the Weinstein investigation and sort of called me. We didn't even know each other. And she called me and said, I know you've done stories in the past about victims of sex crimes. And I know you did reporting with some of the women who were who accused Trump of sexual misconduct. Do you have any suggestions of of, you know, how how you know what to say when you're knocking on these doors and picking up the phone and calling people and to asking them to open up about these painful experiences in their past? So when Megan and I were on the phone, uh, she suggested a kind of argument that she had used with victims in the past, which is to say to them very early in the conversation, look, I can't change what's happened to you in the past, but if we work together, maybe we can take the pain that you experienced and put it to some constructive purpose that will help other people. And when Megan said that, it was like something clicked for me because it's the best reason to talk to a journalist. And also, so many people fear that talking to a journalist is a bad thing, like, oh, it's traitorous or you're a tattletale or you're complaining or whatever. And what we like to do is redefine it as a more noble thing. You are doing this to have a constructive impact on society. It is. It may be very difficult, but our goal is to do something that you can eventually feel very proud of. And so that was really that was really the beginning of our beginning of our partnership. In your book, you write about Lisa Bloom. Uh, this is All Red's daughter. Uh, I'm wondering, someone like that, what does she think she's doing? Does she go to bed every night and sit there and go, ah, ha, ha, we're pulling a fast one and everyone as I'm doing all this work for Harvey. Or does she think she's doing something else? What does she tell herself, do you think? I mean, maybe there will be a day where Lisa Bloom comes into a studio and sits down and opens up her heart and tells us what she's been thinking and feeling and why you it was. You got no inkling of that in your reporting? And why it was. I mean, what we can tell you is that you know she did something remarkable in 2016. She has been one of the most prominent feminist attorneys in the country, uh, worked with countless victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault, and in 2016 crossed over to the other side. Why do you think? She has said that she thought that he only engaged in inappropriate comments towards women and that she wanted to help him go work with him to help him apologize. You know, we obtained in the course of the reporting for this book these confidential records that showed she had much deeper knowledge of the serious allegations against him and that she played a much darker role. I mean, she was not honest about the work she did for him. We've got the billing records, the memo in which she spells out all the underhanded tactics she's going to use to help him undermine his accusers. And she's basically saying, I'm going to use all my experience working with victims and harness that and use it 
with you to work against them. And so was it just about money? I mean, what we know for sure is that she had done a deal with Weinstein. She wanted, she had a book that he was going to turn into a movie um, about Trayvon Martin. But beyond that, I mean, we don't, we, she has not opened up. And when we, when we sought comment from her for this book, I mean, we wouldn't publish, uh, you know, we published that memo that she wrote to him spelling out exactly what she was going to do for him, which really contradicts her public comments about what the role that she played and why she went to go work for him in its entirety so that readers could see for themselves what she was saying in her own words and doing at the time. But when we presented her with that, um, she she refused to comment. She said that, you know, she that she was going to abide by attorney-client privilege, uh, as, you know, as, as, into the future. Jody. Look, I think you're asking the right question, which is you've got one of the most famous feminist attorneys in the country. She's Gloria Allred's daughter. She's been advertising herself as a victim's rights attorney and a fighter for women for all of these years. And she makes what we know is a very intentional decision to cross the line and work for Harvey Weinstein. And we know it's intentional because of the memo that Megan just described. This is her job audition memo. And in it, she's saying, I will smear on your behalf. I will manipulate on your behalf. So the question is, what led her over? You know, what did she genuinely not believe the women she represented over the years? Was she, can, did she think that Rose McGowan was just making it all up, et cetera, et cetera? So we can't look, you know, she's not here. We don't have a crystal ball, et cetera, et cetera. But here's what we can tell you, because this also applies to David Boyes, the the other super lawyer, the the rena- heroic, the renowned litigator who did Bush v. Gore and helped get gay marriage established. Here's the common denominator that Bloom and Boyes have in going to work for Weinstein. They both wanted to be in the movie business. <laughs> I know. Bloom, so Bloom's but Bloom. Wish they'd called me because it's not what it's cracked up to be. Well, Bloom writes this book called Suspicion Nation about Trayvon Martin and gets very excited because Harvey Weinstein and Jay-Z option it to turn it into a film. Boys, for all of his vast, vast, vast legal success, what does he really want to do, at least in part, is be in the movies. He's got interests in the movie business. His daughter was a budding actress and wanted roles, and we even obtained an email in which you've got Harvey sort of setting her up for a part in one of his films. And so, I mean, I think so much of this story, and this was part of my original draw to it, is about, like, what is the power that these movies have on all of us, right? Because it because that's the way Weinstein got everybody to do what he wanted. That was the source of his power, not just in luring people like Boys and Bloom. I'm going to pull you into my magnetic field Exactly, here. but also with the women, right? I mean, this was all about work. Look, it's really important to remember that there are two categories of women, essentially, that Weinstein allegedly harasses and assaults. One of them, actresses. The second, 
assistants, women who want to be producers, right? right? Women who are 23 years old and they're so excited because they're on their at the bottom of a ladder. Very first day at a company like Miramax or the Weinstein Company. This is going to be their big shot. Right. It's so exciting. There's right. so much potential here. And then boom, Harvey Weinstein walks into the room and everything changes. And so this is all about the actresses and the assistants both they they're coming into this with with dreams, with ideas, with ambitions, with hopes and he turns those hopes and ambitions against the women. And that has to do also with the power of the movies, the power of this work. You know, what is your ticket into this world and how can that, you know, is your desire for entry into this world a kind of vulnerability that can then be turned against you? No, you could, you, you don't, I mean, I hope I phrase this the right way, which is that I, I want to believe, I, I'm assuming in your work you unearthed some things about Weinstein that were compelling seductive. Like when people were around him, there had to be something about him that facilitated the whole event that would happen with some of these people. He was a towering figure of accomplishment in the movie business. He was a savant who knew everything there is to know about every aspect on the deepest level of movie making, movie production, movie development, movie distribution. There are very few people, there are almost none. The only equal Weinstein has is Spielberg in terms of knowing everything there is to know about developing, casting, sets, everything. And most important of all, selling that movie and marketing that movie and that awards matrix that he dominated for so long. People thought Weinstein was a genius. Well, we certainly witnessed Weinstein in action. We interviewed him several times. He came into the the New York Times uh, for sit-down interviews. How did he strike you? And he was, I think that we were able to see in person um, that the this sort of range of this this sort of the spectrum of his behavior, that he would swing from kind of charm and compliments and kind of ingratiating himself and like, well, the New York Times, it's the best paper in the world. And, you know, let me tell you a story about it, what a huge fan I am of the New York Times. In terms of how he was able to prey on women, I think that that is a separate question from how he was able to sort of keep people in his orbit and maintain his power. That really is one of the most important questions is that there were actually people who got glimpses of his alleged misconduct over the years. And what did they do about it? And and how does how, how can we explain the fact that there were so many ind- individuals and institutions, including his own companies, that became complicit in his abuse? And what we were able to see is that he kind of employed a variety of personality traits from, from you know, sort of charm machine to threatening, uh, to lashing out, to manipulation, to bullying. And he seemed to kind of pull these out of his pocket at various times to try to get what he had wanted. And I think that, that he had been able to use that. We, in our book, were able to report out uh, this remarkable two years in his own company in 2014 and 2015, when there were more and more allegations coming to the surface that you know people in, up high up in the company, including his own brother Bob Weinstein, saw he was among the people who wanted to do something and wanted to intervene, and and Weinstein was really able to use a variety of tactics to ultimately shut down these efforts of accountability. Reporters Jody Cantor and Megan Tui. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. 
Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com I'm Alec Baldwin, back now with reporters Jody Cantor and Megan Tui. I've never really worked with anyone who has had this strong an internal compass. And I think that compass has just like pulled us forward again and again and again. I think also that Megan is very exacting. God is in the details. I get that. You know, God is in the details on these stories. And I, you know, I hope our sources feel the same way I do, which is that like when I'm in Megan's hands, I just feel like I'm working with a, like, a world-class surgeon or something because the level of precision is so incredibly high. I feel Megan's incredible compassion and empathy for victims, but like kind of wrapped in this rigor that only makes it better because it's not it's not about sitting around and crying. You know, that's the role of a psychologist or a friend. It's about having the strength and the force to make the story really really work and make people feel safe through the power and the strength of the journalism. And then I think the final thing I would say is that I see a relentlessness and an understanding of the psychology of how to get people to give you information. When, this is for Megan, when Jody Cantor comes out of the bullpen and she's heading to the mound. What are her? What is the batter afraid of? What pitches does she have in her repertoire? Oh, I, I would say I think that there's one word that comes to mind when I when I think of Jody, which is persistence. Um, like you know, heaven. Like I sort of pity the person who's trying to get between 
you know, Jody and and the information that she's pursuing. And she is just um, she's just a total bulldog. And it's no surprise that, you know, there was there was a there was sort of a deep throat figure in the Weinstein investigation. Erwin Ryder was in the top orbit of executives by Weinstein's side for years. And uh, ended up actually over the course of a series of secretive meetings with Jody Cantor, ended up providing all this information about the harm that Weinstein was doing to women in the company. Why and do you ultimately, think he did that? Why? Well, I think because he was he was in the hands of Jody Cantor. No, I mean, no, 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 that's not true. No, he did because no. Excuse me, I'm sorry. No, I will, I will, I will correct that. This was somebody who had seen wrongdoing, had become increasingly concerned about it, had tried to do things to hold the boss accountable to no avail. And so when Jody came knocking, was, um, I think, inclined to do something. But the extent to which, I mean, Jody, from the first email she sent to him, uh, through the meetings that she had with him in secret in Tribeca, uh, she was able to ultimately uh, get him to not only start to tell her about what was going on within the company, but ultimately provide her with an internal record, a complaint that had been filed as recently as 2015 that spelled out all these extensive allegations of sexual harassment and abuse in the company. And it really is just one of the many ways in which her persistence has like paid off time and time again. Jody, how'd you get him to do it? I'll tell you the story. Irwin was at, at first very nervous. He grew a little more comfortable. You know, we were meeting late at night in September of 2017 at the restaurant Little Park in Tribeca. I was like, why does he want to meet in the middle of Tribeca in a fancy restaurant? But that was his spot. We always met in the same place. And he was telling me a lot, but this is what sources do, right? They, very few of them sort of like tell the story in order and will know exactly what's relevant and what's not relevant. So he's telling us all this different stuff. And, and every few nights I'm meeting with him, I'm taking everything back to Megan. And we're by day, we're trying to track it down, nail it down. And I mean, a lot of it is checking out. And there was this memo that he had mentioned a few times, but I didn't know how significant it was. And he had read me a few lines from the memo. And I, I, we just thought that there might be more there. So I'm sitting there and we're, we're having our glasses of wine. And I said to him, will you pull up that memo on your phone again? So he pulls it up on his phone. And I, I really, I, I think I just wanted to like maybe get a couple of words right or something. And he looks at me and he says, I'm going to go to the little boy's room now. And he hands me his phone. So it's like he's telling me without explicitly Dig telling in. me, take this document. Now, you never want to forward it to yourself, right? Because that's going to leave a digital trail from his email address to mine. So instead, I'm, you know, I'm like sitting there at the bar. I, You know when you have these moments in life when you're saying to your phone, don't have a technical problem. Like, please, I just need my phone to work for like the next 10 I'm minutes. Battery. Yeah, exactly. So... So his phone is in my lap, and I'm holding my phone uh, over my lap, and I'm careful to scroll so I don't, like, miss any lines, and I'm screenshotting 
every page of this memo, but I still don't know what's in it because I have to work really fast because mm-hmm. I'm trying to like, you know, be all smooth. So anyway, he comes back from the bathroom a minute later and his phone is sitting and waiting for him on his chair. And, you know, we go through the rest of our drink state. But the second he leaves, we say goodbye and he's like, I'll walk you out. And I'm like, no, you know what? I'm going to go to the ladies room. So I go to the ladies room and that's when I send the memo to Megan and Rebecca. And then I walk outside and I hail a cab. And that's when I actually read the memo. And the woman who wrote it, Lauren O'Connor, on top of being a, a very talented junior executive, she's a powerful writer. And so that memo said things like, the balance of power at this company is Harvey Weinstein 10, me zero. So it's sort of like we've been piecing together these allegations from a you know, 25 or 30 year time period. And remember, the earliest allegation, the earliest settlement we've documented that Weinstein has paid is 1990. Think about how early that is, 1990. Lauren O'Connor, she's writing this memo in 2015. And yet it's describing some of the same things that women had experienced in 1990, in the late 90s. Like, for example, she's describing an incident at the peninsula in Beverly Hills. Well, Ashley Judd and Gwyneth Paltrow have told us about being sexually harassed at the peninsula in Beverly Hills by Weinstein, but their stories take place in the mid to late 90s. So it's like this sense of how long has this guy been doing this? And we've got to publish this story because nobody else has stopped him. Um, Both of you, if I'm not mistaken, you both have a daughter. Jody has two. I have one. You have one daughter. You have two daughters. And I have an older daughter who's 23, and I have a younger daughter who's six. And my wife and I, from time to time, think about what kind of a world will they interact with in the future? We think about that question every day. And the confounding thing is that everything's changed and nothing's changed. And I still don't have the answer. What What hasn't changed? The laws, the structures, the systems that govern how we all behave, they just haven't changed. It, like The difficulty of reporting one of these incidents, maybe there's a little less social stigma, but it's not fundamentally different than it was two years ago. Federal sexual harassment laws in this country are so weak. If you're a freelancer, you're not covered. If you work for a workplace that has fewer than 15 employees, you're not covered. So there have been a couple of adjustments to the law on the state level, but like the fundamental rules of our society have barely changed. So with respect to your question about kids, I think about our kids and I think about grandkids. And I think, you know, what are we going to tell them about this period? Are we going to say, you know, wow, Megan and I published this story and found ourselves, you know, at ground zero of a historic shift and 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 we can see the effects of that you know to this day and it and it really was a window of change or are we going to say well you know it was kind of kind of an extraordinary period and a whole bunch of men were fired but you know not that much fundamentally shifted. And then will the kids and grandkids say, oh, yeah, that, you know, sexual harassment, it still happens at my workplace all the time. It happens at my, you know, the restaurant where I wait tables during the summer. Or are they going to look at us and say, oh, my God, it used to be okay for male bosses to hit on younger female subordinates who they held workplace power over. It used to be okay in a restaurant for the male manager to grope the waitress. Well, I wouldn't say it wasn't okay, but they got away with it. Right. Like, like they, they, 
they 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 may they may say, wait a second, people in Hollywood like they just joked about the casting couch and they just accepted it as a routine part mm-hmm. of their business, and will they feel a kind of shock at at what used to be tolerated? Well, I, I want to get to that in a minute about about the willingness factor, where not that they're willing, but but men believe sometimes that they're willing. Megan, tell me about your crystal ball into the future, if you will. My crystal ball into the future. <laughs> I mean. You, you know, we are so uh, we are so immersed in the reporting process uh, day in and day out. You know, the first day right after the Weinstein story broke and it started to take off. I mean, we had never anticipated that uh, two nights before we went to, you know, we went to publish. Jody and I actually stepped back. We'd been working around the clock and we actually shared a cab uh, back to Brooklyn at about one o'clock in the morning. And in that silent moment, turned to each other and said, you know, do you think anybody's going to read this story? Does anybody know who Harvey Weinstein is? Is anybody going to care? So I think if you're looking for like signs that we're predictors of the future, that's certainly not the you case. You know, no, I, I, I don't, that's yeah, not the I case. Don't. But I mean, it's instinctually yeah, as instincts, women and mothers. In, yeah, I mean, I think that I, I, you know, I think that it's not. I, I would say that that you know, I think that you're actually asking the question in a pretty within a pretty narrow framework. I think that we've found among our sort of male friends and colleagues that they are uh, just as concerned and, and, and parents of sons, I think, are just as invested in this issue. And uh, I think that you talk to parents of daughters and sons, they will tell you that they really want to make sure that we are able to figure out, emerge from this moment with some uh, sort of agreed upon standards that make sure that everybody is treated fairly and receives adequate protections and that that this that it's a safe world for you know the girls and the boys I mean I've got three boys a four-year-old a three-year-old and a one-year-old I mean I want to go off on that tangent but it's just it's it's really remarkable how this plays into that I'm saying to my son going you know don't touch anybody without their permission that's a story that I won't bore you with but but I was filming a documentary film with uh, J- Jimmy Toback uh, who is a dear friend of mine and in terms of sexual harassment there's a whole pile of uh, uh, hundreds, hundreds, hundreds <laughs> of women have accused him. Right. Jimmy's one of those people who believe that if my batting average is 10%, I need to hit on a 1,000 women. I'm not excusing his behavior, but Jimmy's somebody who I had this deep intellectual exploration with about films we were going to do. We developed a bunch of projects together. There were very few people in the world you could have the kind of conversation about movie making you could have with Jimmy. And he was a very dear, dear friend of mine. And then all this stuff comes up where they say he actually physically assaulted um, Selma Blair. Now, when someone is your friend, you tend to give it some credence. I I am this South Shore, Long Island, middle-class white boy that I am. Someone who your friend... Right. I mean, like, look, if your best friend was convicted of murder, would you visit that person in jail? That's like a... It's a legit moral conundrum. Right. I think plenty of us are friends with people who have done terrible things wrong. And right. like, and that's an interesting decision, right? Like, do his sins against other people... Pr- there are arguments for and against that preventing you from having a friendship with him. Right. But, but, you know, Harvey Weinstein is different. I never did business with Harvey. You know, years ago, people would say, blah, 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 and Oscars, and this, and, uh, and the Weinstein Company, and Miramax, and he raped Rose McGowan. Like, everybody knew that. So what do you think explains that? Why do you think that people in your world were able to accept that for that th- fifth but, talking point? With but, that? I, but I think that that's I, – I, I myself would not use that word accept because when I did the movie The Aviator that Harvey produced, I didn't even know he was involved. Scorsese himself called me 
And when Marty calls you, you go. I arrived on the set in Montreal to discover that Harvey was one of the producers, but he was never there. So I do highlight the fact that, that accept is not the word. I mean, nobody that I know accepted anything about him. I was so curious about something you said a minute ago, which is when you were talking about Toback, you did something really interesting, which is you kept alternating between the past and the present in terms of talking about whether he's your friend or not. You said, he was my friend, he is my friend, he was my friend, he is my friend. So would you still call him your friend? I'm just curious. Yes. I, I don't know that he sexually assaulted women in, in auditions. I don't know that. I don't know that. Well, so it's, like, it's, like with, right. it's like with Woody. So, but to go back okay. to your sort of distinction of, you know, it sounds like you're paying close attention to this single criminal allegation and his denial of a crime. No, I'm only saying that there's gradations here. And I think that what Weinstein did was far where and he had the power to do. There are also gradations of the victims, right? I mean, that in the case of Weinstein, he was allegedly preying on well-known famous actresses, as well as, you know, lowly assistants in his companies, you know, the type of 23-year-olds that you wouldn't recognize if you passed them on the street, you know, who, for the most part, had sort of disappeared uh, without a trace, without, you know, ever becoming public before this. And so the question there, I think, for you is, Selma Blair, Blair, aside, these dozens of other women who have come forward, they may not be famous, but, you know, I think it's still worth learning those allegations and, and, and knowing them. But here's, here's what I think would be a really interesting exercise. The James Toback coverage was mainly done by the LA Times. Right. That's my impression. Yes. I would go back and read those stories and listen to the women because it sounds like you may have missed something really important, which is the sort of audition factor involved in, Did any of them bring charges against it, Jimmy? Well, remember, you're saying charges, which is a criminal word. Um, any civil cases brought against Jimmy by those women? I don't know. We'd have, I don't, to, we'd have, we, to, we'd, we'd have to go back sure. and check because, again, but, it, was the, the, the it, was the, it was the L.A. Times reporting, right. not ours. But I guess what I'm saying is I think it's worth really listening to the women's experiences, even with the stories that are allegations of sexual harassment and not violent sexual assault. There's a harm that's real, mm. even if it isn't physical, which has to do with work, and it can play out over a very long time. Let's talk about Weinstein because those are, you know, those are the victims we have interviewed the most thoroughly. When you talk to women who have really terrible stories of sexual harassment by Weinstein, part of what a lot of them feel now is a sense of loss and grief because even though, you know, he's been outed and even though um even though there's a sense of sort of like um communal accountability towards him, even though the world now knows about so many of these women's stories. What a lot of them say is is that, you know, I can never be 23 years old again. I can never go audition for those movies. I can never have my first job in film again. And my whole life is different because of the way he treated me. Mm -hmm. And there's really nothing that can ever change that. Um, Jody, how long have you worked at The Times? I've been there a long time, like 15 years almost. 15 years. Yeah. And how would you describe the sexual harassment policies of the times? Do you... <laughs> does, does, nobody, does nobody I'll, sexually harass anybody at the times? I'll, t I'll tell you what, Alec. I wouldn't because that is not my job and that is not Megan's job. The Times has like a whole HR apparatus right. and all these editors and leaders who deal with— That you find satisfactory. Yeah, because first of all, listen, everybody has been affected by Me Too. I don't think there's an organization, including we're sitting here at 
WNYC, which has had its own issues over time. Every organization is affected by this. It's close to all of us. There have been issues at the times. But Megan and I have been very careful not to get involved in any of them because we've got to do our jobs. And our jobs is, you know, we're not the internal cops at the times. Our job is to uncover this information. You know, you can't solve a problem you can't see. But do you see see maybe there's there's an odd component to that where you want me to make sure I examine Jimmy Kotoback in relation to Weinstein as carefully as I should, but you don't think you need to examine the times as carefully as Miramax or Weinstein films? No, because we, like... I mean, I was just curious about your personal relationship with him and your friendship. So I no, was, re- that, I was, right. I was really, I was, I was just really asking a question. But I don't think, in a work context, Megan and I bear. There are people at the Times who bear actual responsibility for making sure that we have sound policies for pre- preventing and addressing right. this kind right. of behavior. That is not Megan or I. No, no I understand. What about you? Would you have a comment about that, Megan? Yeah, I mean, there have been a variety of cases that have played out at the New York Times that have been investigated, and some have resulted in people leaving the Times. Um, some have it resulted happens. in people being placed right. on probation. Like, it is what, what's clear to us, and we don't know the details of those cases, but we know, like, we, it, there is evidence of accountability playing out throughout our own organization. And, you know, what we can say beyond that is just that when it comes to the reporting on sexual harassment and sexual assault at the New York Times, that, we, you know, we have had the support of editors and beyond straight up to the very top of the organization. You know, this was not, this is not work that's they being done just by, yeah. just by women. This is, you know, male editors, the ma- you know, male publishers, our investigation straddled the passing of the baton um, of, of, of the publishers. Both men were like, 100% in support of this and and so we you know we 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 feel lucky to live in, to work in an organization that has been willing to put so many resources uh, behind this type of work. What do you think men now need to learn about how to say to you I'm attracted to you? Is that all going to change now? Should it change? Well, listen, I think that there's agreement um, that there is a hunger for kind of a clearer sense of what the guidelines should be in the workplace, but within dating and and more broadly in relations of men and women. There's no question that everybody can have sexually satisfying lives and romantic lives while also figuring out how to treat each other with respect. And I think that that's, you know, I think that the worst thing that could happen is that people don't talk about these Mm. issues. And if they're not, whether it's with their kids Mm. or their, you know, their partners or in the workplace, but and also in these interviews, you know, like we're just so grateful that you were willing to talk to us about, for example, your relationship with Toback and like, thank you for engaging with us. But that doesn't mean I don't have work to do, which you've reminded me of that again. I mean, we... we And I'm going to go back and read those LA Times pieces and I'm going to contact the writer, the principal writer of that. See if he'll come come to the show and talk about that. I think that's a great idea. I would also just say that I think it's really important to recognize that this is really abuse of power. This is not just a sort of sexual preference or a tool that's being used by unattractive guys because they wouldn't otherwise be able to get women. Yeah, yeah. that this is abuse of power. I want to end by saying that this was one of the more difficult and, on my part, least successful interviews. I've ever done. Both of these writers know their subject and my own grasp of the Me Too issue is in need of further research. The writer they referred to from the LA Times is Glenn Whip, 
and we will surely invite him on in soon. In the meantime, the friction between believe the victim and innocent until proven guilty continues. Thanks to Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy, I am reminded that we are never done re-examining this issue and our own relationship to it. Their book about their Weinstein reporting and its fallout is called She Said, out now from Penguin Press. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.